Welcome to The Third Wheel. My name is Tyler, and next to me is Bjorn. Hello. And across the continent from me is Jesse. Yeah, hi. So, this week, on this most glorious of podcasts, we are going to be talking about chapters 31 through 40 of The Eye of the World, and... I didn't really come up with an intro this time as like, you know, some pithy, hey, this is going to be fun. It's going to be a little, ha Tyler's the jokester. Tyler exists to make you laugh. <laughs> uh, but I can in the next, uh, oh, five seconds or so. Boy, I sure do love uh, climbing walls and falling over them. <laughs> How about you, Bion? Um, are, we, are we doing this? Yeah. This is a real bit. This is going in. Okay. Don't start with me. I feel like you're acting a bit like Sokka from Avatar The Last Airbender. Where I'm sure he's funny to himself. I am extremely funny to everyone as long as they are me. Are we... Any notes before we start? (laughs) Maybe from the first time reader? Don't steal things. Yeah. That's bad. Are you only saying that because I have the word STOLEN in all caps at the top of my notes? No, because Matt is, you know, being a bit aggro. He did steal that dagger. Yeah, don't steal. Um, We meet some farmer people throughout these chapters and just various other side characters and get... To know more about the geography and assumptions. Some real salt of the earth... You know, insert the joke from Blazing Saddles here. You know, morons. Yeah, you know, morons. So speaking of these simple folk, let's get started. Chapter 31 is called Play for Your Supper. We open up back on Rand and Matt as they're making their way down the highway to Camelin. And... Rand is like, just looking up and down the road, seeing... Oh no, there's somebody 40 miles away. We better hide in this hedge for the next day and a half while they pass. So one thing I noticed on the first time I read this, and again this time, is that the chronology in this set of chapters is totally bizarre, and I oh, don't know yeah. why. No, it's it's totally insane. So they mention at the beginning of this chapter these scarves that they had that were given to them by a kindly farmer. Mm-hmm. And then... By the end of the chapter, you see the scene where the farmer gave them the scarves, but I've totally lost track of when any of these events are happening, and I don't know why he chose to write it this way. Yeah, seeing that specific event twice seems unnecessary as, like, an understatement. (laughs) Got tired of editing halfway through, was like, I probably covered everything. Time have passed. Yeah, did I remember to put in the part where they get the scarves? Let's just write it again. Let's make sure. Yeah, sometimes they, when they're going down the road, they are like, well, this person could be a dark friend. They could be a murderer. If they're on a horse, that's bad. If they're not on a horse, that's also probably bad. So they are just hiding from everybody. Matt's real paranoid. Yeah, he is getting to the point where he's, like, about to pull the knife on people that are actively helping them. (laughs) 
How dare you? Yeah. So as they go, they're making their way through small towns. They're going by farmhouses. Rand and Matt have an argument about selling the evil stolen dagger or the sword. And Matt's like, why don't you sell this priceless family heirloom? And Rand is like, well, why don't we sell this gold encrusted dagger? And Matt's like, no, you. Yeah, Matt is, like, consistently getting them run off of farms, even after doing the work, or, like, mid-work. And we see, at one point, I i don't remember if it's the Grinwell's farm that they come up on, or if it's a different one. But Matt and Rand are, like, shoveling hay, and Matt turns to the guy and is staring at him, and is like, I bet this guy's going to knife us. I better knife him first. And then gets really shook when the guy runs away. He's like, I bet he's going to get a knife. Matt is like the peak of Matt in this chapter. But they do eventually come across a farm owned by a family called the Grinwells. The boys are doing fine there. The family seems happy to have them. The work isn't too bad. Everything is perfect. Someone's flirting with Rand. Yes, someone is flirting with Rand, which is the only part that is maybe slightly subperfect. It's this girl named Elsie Grinwell who chews on her pigtails <laughs> and just stares at Rand unendingly. Perrin would know how to handle this. Yeah, Perrin would definitely know how to handle someone staring at him, and Rand is. His thoughts are like, if the parents saw her looking at me like this, they would probably kill me. She hungers. Oh, (laughs) she thirsts. Uh, So that night, Matt does some juggling. Rand plays on the flute to entertain the family. As a little like, hey, thanks for food and giving us a bed and warmth. And the mother puts together that Elsie is staring at Rand. She's like, I think Elsie's going to sleep in my bed tonight behind a locked door. And Rand is going to sleep behind as many creaky floorboards as possible. Also leave. (laughs) (laughs) But this gives Rand an idea. Yeah, he has an idea. He's like, hey, we have some marketable skills. And he figures out if we just stop at inns every night and offer to play, we're like the worst gleeman in the world. But put together, we're only the second worst gleeman in the world. Can I use a dead guy as a reference on my resume? Yeah. You can't call him, but I promise he would have given me a good one. (laughs) I was a very serious apprentice. It was a very dedicated time for me. Me plus my friend adds up to one dedicated apprentice. A week-long apprenticeship that resulted in my master's death. (laughs) You know, when you put it like that... (laughs) Completely coincidental. Nothing is wrong. You make it sound like it's their fault that they got chased down by... Oh, wait. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) So, they go through this song and dance, no pun intended, a few times. And then they end up in a small village called Four Kings, which brings us to chapter 32, Four Kings in Shadow. There's a note that I kind of wanted to 
tack oh, on to track for these chapters. Sure. So they talk about at the end of this chapter how this pattern of them working for their meals and their and their lodgings becomes their way of traveling. And I feel like this is building character and not in the writing sense. I mean more in the Calvin's dad and Calvin and Hobbes building character sense. Uh, if you know what, what if you know what I'm talking about, essentially Rand gets hardened over these this set of chapters, and it's pretty observable. And I just want to keep track of that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That is definitely a like they're growing up by being on their own and having to fix this interpersonal issue that they are continually having. That really is no one's fault in particular. It's Matt's fault. It's Matt's fault. Which brings us back to chapter 32. Which may as well be called It's Matt's Fault. (laughs) Although, this one doesn't feel like Matt's fault. You know, I think every chapter in this section should probably be called It's Matt's Fault. Maybe taking a break on the ones that Matt isn't in, but even then... So, the village of Four Kings is the largest that they've been to... Uh, But it's still smaller than, like, a real town. Everyone here is extremely suspicious in both the worth being of suspicious of and the suspicious of other senses. And they have a kind of a tough time figuring out where to stay. They are going around all of the inns and they all suck. They're just, like, full of rowdy drunk folks. Some of them already have people playing music until they reach this one where there's like three people in the room one of them is being paid to be there one of them is the guy that owns it and none of them look happy the guy in charge is like skin and bones and i have a note here that says never trust a skinny cook well he he's not the cook well he's not the cook but i think it holds but he's a cartoonishly evil dickhead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a he's a garbage man. He, like, one of his serving girls gives him lip and he doesn't even look at her as he, like, backhands her to the floor. And he's like, the broken drink or the broken glass is coming out of your paycheck and the liquid in it. And also, I'm not paying you to lay on the ground. What are you doing? Easy, hateable character. Oh, yeah. The pair of Rand and Matt get up on stage, and they quickly, like, fill the place to the point where people aren't able to sit down. There's so many patrons. Rand is, like, his flute playing can't be heard over the people yelling for him to play more. And Matt... Every time he gets up is, like, considering knifing people. He's, like, extremely suspicious of everyone. But they're suspicious, too, so it's all okay. Yeah, one of them is especially suspicious. It's this guy who's super well-dressed and he doesn't fit in. He, like, orders wine and then just pushes it to the side and stares at Rand and Matt the entire night. Yeah, he's described as sleekly fleshy. Great. (laughs) He's well moisturized. Ew. 
<laughs> what else do you think that description means? He's just a little, he's a, he's a bit shiny. I mean, the description made me say ew, too, so. <laughs> do you think he's, like, dripping in grease? <laughs> Is that sleek or slick? Um, I mean, things that are wet can be sleek and also slick. Once again, Maybe. ew. <laughs> the books are so descriptive, you can make up your own horror. Alpha Omega AU. I can't ask you enough times to stop. <laughs> you need to be stopped. You're the one that brought up Slick. Oh, God. Um, but let's, to continue, let's he's, move on. he's very suspicious and not at all subtle. Yeah. Uh, Rand is like talking to Matt and he goes while they're eating dinner and listens to the women. He goes outside. He basically goes on like a little side quest to figure out who this guy is. And he figures out that he's from Whitebridge. And he and Matt discuss and say, hey, this guy seems like a real friend of the dark. A dark <laughs> friend, if you will. After the playing for your supper is over, Rand and Matt get shown to their room by the skinny not cook and his two bullies. Who have been eyeing their possessions all night. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Rand, at every opportunity, like, anytime he is not actively having a different thought, he is having the thought, these people are going to rob us. Yeah, we spend, like, three pages on that line of thought. Yeah, of, like, how are they going to rob us? How sick is it going to be when they rob us? Yeah, Rand, let's keep thinking about getting robbed. And not leave. Yeah. Definitely not leave. Well, Both boys are clearly great decision makers, very rational, very thoughtful. They're like 18. <laughs> so they get taken to their room and it's like an unused closet full of knickknacks. And Rand kind of bars the door and they try to escape out the window and it's just not happening. So the dark friend shows up and knocks and is like, hey, I want to talk to you. And Rand's like, go away. And the guy comes back and he says, hey, I want to talk to you. And also, please? And Rand says, no. And the guy comes back and he says, okay, well, Satan is going to take your soul. So <laughs> please let me in. And Rand is like, man, I sure wish there was a way out from this conversation because I'm having some anxiety about Satan. And a way out appears. A way out appears. Uh, the wall explodes because lightning strikes it. It is, it like destroys the wall. It kills all of the dark friends outside. It either stuns or kills the ones inside. And Matt Blinds is- Matt. <laughs> yeah, Matt is struck- at least temporarily blind. Well, I guess we know it's only temporary. Matt is struck temporarily blind and Rand grabs his hand and a thousand ships form <laughs> like ships in the night. So, Bion, what was your take on what actually happened here? I was like, is this plot armor and or pattern? With the dark friend who's totally not suspicious outside the door, I was wondering if the number of times asked was significant or not. And then um, 
with the magically timed out of the closet experience, um, I was just wondering if that was a pattern thing where they need to get out of there because there are, are dark friends and they're two of the important trio, so they need to escape. So whether it's just going to bow down to them or if this is, I don't know, perhaps Moraine took pity on them and was like, we're going to go get Perrin, but I'll just give these guys a little lightning strike for funsies. Yeah. I it, it was just, I don't think I was expecting lightning. Um <laughs> No, Neither were they. <laughs> no, no, I wasn't like, mm, yes, I'm ready. It was, uh, it was definitely one of those things where it's very visual. Don't know how to explain that beyond this author likes to write a lot of words and they were useful in this case. It's a lot of long. words. Yeah, yeah uh, it's a lot of words. So by the end of this set of chapters, we get described what a Tavarin is. Uh, so cue me whispering the word Tavarin every time something unlikely happens. But I had had the concept of Tavarin spoiled for me by Tyler because he just could it. not resist. You said you didn't mind. I don't think he spoiled it for me. Or if he was, he did. I wasn't paying attention. So I definitely did. You definitely just weren't paying attention. I just definitely wasn't listening to my significant other. Um, so I am still giving the very much new perspective. So yeah, but I mean, so when I read this chapter, I had the concept of Tavarin spoiled for me. But even then, I don't think that's the whole story. I guess we'll find out. But not in the next chapter, thirty-three. <laughs> the dark awaits. Yeah, uh, nothing happens except that the chapter is told in media res, which is kind of a strange choice. So we start off with Rand and Matt in the back of a wagon. Rand is getting over a sickness with a speed that surprises him. And Matt can almost see again. Uh, Matt is also continuing to be extremely paranoid. Then we flash back to the night that they escaped. Rand and Matt go into some bushes and they huddle together like two people in a sweat tent. And they drift off to sleep. Rand wakes up from a dream that is really realistic, uh, but it's just him and Baalzim on there. Yeah, and this is me. This also contributed to my confusion with chronology, because I thought we were jumping back again to see the aftermath of the lightning scene, but then that's also a dream. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Not told especially well, or at least not clearly. And the the dream itself isn't as fantastical. It's not breaking mice backs or the depths of fire from the eyeballs. And I just was wondering, will this trend continue where he's going to keep bothering Rand and definitely mess with his REM cycles so he's not going to be well rested <laughs> and might become paranoid like Matt does over time? And so we'll just slowly become even more of a conversation of, hey, they're going to use you. Rand, my guy, you got to take some melatonin or something. (laughs) Yeah. So I was just wondering if this is another technique of trying to get him to accept the dark side and whatnot, because um, obviously the big scary part didn't work. So now we're just going to warn you about how you're being used. 
But yeah, this, I do not like time jumps so much around trying to figure out when things happen. It should be over. Cool. Yeah. Also, like, unmotivated time jumps. I don't know why this is written this way. Yeah. Trying out a writing technique. So, they wake up and they're walking for most of the day. When they get to the next village, Rand spends almost all of their money, since uh, he refuses to play the flute and Matt can't juggle. The following morning, they're eating breakfast. A breakfast of milk and bread? I just had to call that out. That's so strange. There's another dark friend that shows up. He is, like, the most obvious person in existence. He's got, like, a big feather in his hat, and he is just swinging it on his finger, and as soon as he looks at Rand and Matt, he's like, Oh, jeez. Uh, uh, can I talk to you two specifically in this empty room where it's just us, and I clearly am, like, following you? And they're like, Get lost, loser. Which is <laughs> pretty much actually word for word what they say. They tell him to stop following them, and then Rand just punches him in the nose. At which point, the guy starts yelling about the Dark One and how Shaitan will take their souls. Okay, I've totally lost the thread of this chapter. I, it's, they're almost, we're almost back into yeah. a normal chronology. Like you're talking about events, and I have no idea where it is in my notes. That's a-okay. <laughs> Uh, try and find them while I describe this very interesting next sequence. Did did we already see the scene where they get the scarf from the farmer in this chapter? I don't even have it noted when the thing actually occurs. Well, I only have it noted because I have this quote where the farmer gives them the scarves, and then he says, I'm sorry I can't help you more, and then he says... I have a wife and children, you understand. My family. It's hard times for helping strangers. Then, Matt tried to stick his hand under his coat, but ran <laughs> at his wrist, and he held on. And Matt, no. <laughs> oh, my light. That is horrific. Matt, you're the reason why it's hard times. Yeah, seriously. Like, it's just Matt. <laughs> Matt is the cause. Everyone else is the nicest person. Matt is, like, just going around knifing enough people that they're like, it's hard times out there. It's, it's difficult. Anyone could be Matt. Yeah, every time anything happens, he, like, reaches for the knife. He is actively looking for people to shove the knife into. Feed the knife with blood. Um, that, the, the, the scarf giving happens after the, uh, dream where Baal, blah, bleh. Baal Zaman. Baal Zaman does his talking when Rand wakes up and Matt has another nightmare. Then they go get the nice warm scarf. And then they meet the totally not a dark friend's dark friend. Um, Yes. That, All right, I think I have it straight now. If that's helpful. Okay. Yeah. Um, so at the next town that they get to, they go in to play the flute, juggle, and Rand has a breakdown, like a physical breakdown. 
um, from some sort of illness that comes on extremely suddenly. Um, he has chills, weakness, nausea, and he can't focus on anything. And Matt pretty much just drags him into a barn and keeps getting things for free from the innkeeper by being like, if you don't give me this, I'm going to tell everybody that you had a sick guy in here. This scene has the only sign of good friend Matram Kauthen in this whole stretch of chapters. Matt covered him when he shook and fed him water when he complained of thirst. Just rest easy. You're Randall Thor. That's who you are. With the ugliest face and the thickest head in the two rivers. And this is likable Matt for the first time in a long time. What a bro. <laughs> Maybe for the first time ever. We had a glimpse of it in the first couple chapters. Well, we'll get more later on and... Gosh, I can't wait for it. Is there a reason why Rand and Matt were willing to do the entertainment in this chapter as opposed to last chapter? I think they were just desperate. Yeah. Maybe? Yeah, and now Rand can... Rand is, like, over the emotional turmoil enough to play, and Matt can see well enough to juggle. Okay. Do, like, some bad juggling. Just, like, three balls in a circle so matt was trying to stab people still without having fully functional eyeballs yes eyes don't hold him back <laughs> okay eyes don't have hands no okay are my eyes too suspicious pulls knife so rand has some pretty gnarly dreams at this point and as he's waking up in the morning there's a woman entering the stables she is dressed as fancy as Moraine, and uh, she walks over and just tries to knife them. Uh, Matt stops her almost- A real hot knife. Yeah. Yeah, Matt almost shoves the knife back in her, and Rand's like, we're not dark friends. So Matt just stuffs her in a room in a barn, and then they just leave. This is fine. Yeah. Problem solved. They just walk out of the barn and keep going on their way. And finally, blessedly, we reach chapter 34 entitled The Last Village. Do you mean it this time? Uh, please say it. Tell me it's so. I'm sure there will be many more last villages to continue. No. Um, is, is, is the fact that this woman was like, let's stab Matt, uh, significant? No. I mean, I think at this point, they're equally solid targets. Okay. The idea is probably just you stab Matt, and then there's no one to stop you from stabbing Rand. Okay. Yeah, because Rand is incapacitated. Yeah. Okay. The pair continues to head down the road on their final walked stretch. Doing their absolute worst Frodo and Sam impression. Yeah, seriously. And Rand reflects on the fact that Wait, oh, sorry, my note was confusing. It made a lot of sense when I wrote it. It says, Rand reflects on the fact that none of these last few chapters have involved skipping more than a few hours ahead in time. But A, one of the chapters was told out of order, and B, that's not the way that he thinks about it. So I don't know why I wrote it down that way. You were Rand. On this most blood- God, I wish I was Rand. Oh, man. That, that's distressing. Well, oh, I guess it depends on how far in book four you are, whether that's distressing or not. 
Matt continues to voice his fear that he and Rand are the only one of the seven left. And by voices his fear, what I mean is complains loudly that everyone else is dead. All my friends are dead. Except you, Rand. By the way, are you going to attack me? I'd better knife you first. You haven't been hiding anything in your pockets, have you? An apple, maybe? I won't hold it against you if you have. You could at least look. Oh my god. It hurts because it's true. Nah, Matt, I'm just happy to see you. Um, but is this- It's really circular. (laughs) That, you know, sometimes the, the, the two rivers are a bit weird. But- the, the the paranoia level here and the not really upset about all my friends being dead dynamic, this is a lot because of the totally not cursed weapon, correct? To as it continues. No. Oh, I mean no. Okay. Uh, well, I mean because Matt is clearly not the best of the trio, but um, for them to tolerate him that long, he has to clearly have some redeeming traits. So I'm assuming he does have normal empathetic responses towards the fact that his friends from childhood and also mysterious cool people are all disappeared. He 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 would actually have a different response. Yeah, this is not regular Matt. I okay. don't I don't feel like that's a spoiler if you've read any other piece of media. Yeah, no, this is dagger Matt. Okay. So they are continuing on the second to last day, and they arrive at a village very late, excuse me, very late in the evening, and they see a Merdral speaking with the keeper of the only inn in the village, and telling him to keep a lookout for the two boys by a pretty specific description, including, hey, one of them stole a heron-marked blade from me. They also overhear a farmer that doesn't seem interested in any of that, and it's just like, I'm going to Camelon. He's a good queen's man. Yeah. I'm a good queen's man, you understand. Why would the innkeeper be listening to a myrtle? Maybe, well, because the Merdral has the hood drawn, so you don't know that it's an evil shadow spawn monster. Just a spooky guy. Yeah, just your average spooky dude. Just, aren't they kind of tall and Slenderman-ish, though? Well, not if they're covered in a cloak. Then they're just a tall dude. They're I not admit, like... it is hard to, it is hard to picture someone talking to a tall, cloaked figure shrouded in shadows and being chill with it seems legit thank you fellow neighbor yeah being like this seems like a guy i can trust that that part just confused me when reading because do they somehow sound normal even though they clearly don't look normal i think the money that they're offering sounds normal enough okay so the farmer that wasn't interested Says, hey boys, hop in my cart. My windowless cart. And they're like, oh boy, candy. (laughs) So they hop in the cart for a free nighttime ride to Camelin. Good queen's man. Like you said. Yeah. The guy talks about another Aes Sedai in Camelin, 
one who advises Morgays. He, I'm sorry, she works for the Queen, and her name is Elieda. El- Elida? Not again! What, did you think the I was before the A? No. Wait, isn't the I before the A? No. No. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> I've turned my mic back up. We're good. I'm good. Everything's cool. Elida. You know, the advisor to Queen Morgase. Good Queen Morgase. That witch from Tarvalon. Maybe it's time she stopped advising the Queen. This kind of reminded me of a scene in an earlier chapter where Rand has a bit of a realization that the two rivers is libertarian paradise. <laughs> <laughs> it's New Hampshire. Uh, oh, no. It hasn't seen the Queen's guards in seven generations and the Queen's tax collectors in six. So okay. that means that the tax collectors stay, stuck around for one generation longer than the guards. Nice little uh, detail there, Robert Jordan, but. You know, when you put it like that, I hate it. <laughs> it's almost as if Robert Jordan feels that libertarians have the right idea. Uh, please note main character's name. <laughs> Ooh, please, no. No. <laughs> Not like this. <laughs> I didn't want this. Take it back. Uh, so... There's some background information in here about how the all the queens of Andor, before their queens, go to train with the Tarvalon witches. And this, like, hey, builds some ties between the two. That's great. Everybody loves having ties. Rand has some more nightmares on this trip about his friends being taken by the Dark One. And when he wakes, they arrive in Camelin, quote, the grandest city in the world, end quote. That seems really Camelin-centric. Wow. <laughs> um, I, I did have a question about the politics. Um, so there is a queen, and that is significant. Yes. But the, the queen's power doesn't really exist in Two Rivers because they're their own weird, weird quirky... They're, like, so far away that it's not worth going to collect taxes. Okay. They're far away and geographically difficult to get to because they're surrounded on two sides by a river and one side by a mountain range. Yeah. You have to go, you know, across Terran Ferry. And how are you supposed to collect taxes and then bring them back across Terran Ferry? Those folk will steal it. Okay. And then... I suppose because one of the previous villages was called Four Kings, is there a historical mention of queens versus kings in being rulers? Is this the queen as in kind of how there's the Queen of England? Is this... Might just be the roads. Just the roads. I mean, the thing is, one thing I didn't understand at first, when on my first read... I didn't understand that she isn't the queen of the entire continent. There's a specific country in this continent that's bigger than all the other countries by land, 
that she is the queen of. Yeah. But but there are other kings around, like the king of Carheen and Ilian and Tyr. Maybe it's, well, Tyr doesn't have a king until later. So is it city-states, kind of with Sparta, Athens, stuff Uh, like that? Some of them. Some of them are, like, the country is the capital city and then the area around that city. Yeah, very small countries. Yeah. Okay. So there are, I could see there being around four kings at any given time. Yeah. It's probably not a comment on the geopolitical situation, though. It's it's just, if clearly there are gender roles assigned in this society about what you can be and what you do. So I was just wondering if there's a significance of having a queen that gets casually trained with cool witches being the ruler in this place as opposed to other places. No, I think that's because they mention that there have been and or queens that were full Aes Sedai okay. like a thousand years ago. Yeah, not recently. No. that I, I, I was just wondering that because that's where my interests go. But we may continue to, to Camelin. To chapter 35, Camelin. Yes. Not Camelot. Not <laughs> Camelion. As or Camelot. S- or Camelot. Um, so Matt has another breakdown. Matt, has, at this point, I think he just is having one breakdown that <laughs> just has, that he like takes a little snack break, but it's continuous. It's just continuously deteriorating. Yes. Just like my desire to read Matt's name in this section of the book. Talking about all of their friends, he says, if you ask me, they're as dead as the Gleeman. Well, well, yeah, I mean, technically, he's right. <laughs> Thanks, but. edgy boy. Uh, so they arrive in Camelin and they uh, we get some backstory on the city being built by the Ogier. And from the description, it could possibly be the grandest city in the world. Matt is done with his snack break, so the breakdown reoccurs. And Rand kind of slaps him around a bit and is like, get yourself together. We're going to find the Queen's Blessing. But first, let me wrap my sword in red cloth. Yeah, I have a note that says... May the light send that this subplot with Matt is almost over. <sighs> it's it's close. Uh, so yes, Rand does notice that people are either wearing white or red on their swords, and he decides to spend almost the last of their money buying a cloth, a red cloth. Because it's cheaper. Just because it's cheaper that he puts on his sword. Tavar. Yeah, and he wraps it so that no one can see the heron. I mean, that seems like a relatively smart decision compared to other decisions that have been made. It's smart, except that he doesn't realize it means something. Yeah, yeah. relatively. Because <laughs> yeah. if, 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 if those are the only two colors, there's clearly a divide within this grand city. Yeah, it's probably not just a fashion choice. So they finally make it to the Queen's Blessing, which is an inn. And there is a lot of conversation here. 
the boys again insist that Tom is dead. They're like, we didn't see him die, but well, he's definitely dead. Well, they find an innkeeper that knows Tom. Yes. Yeah, he runs the Queen's Blessing. Yeah, I guess I should have been more clear. They're speaking with the keeper of the inn. They don't just randomly shout it in the inn. No, they're not just <laughs> yelling at each other, Tom's dead. Yeah, I agree. He's dead. Uh, so they're speaking with the innkeeper, and the keeper is like, Tom's dead when I see that he's dead. Trope savvy. Yeah. This guy reads the eye of the world. He has a library. He's read things. He does, in fact, have a library. There's also a moment where Rand tries to prove that he knows Tom, where he says, He opened the case as if showing the gold and silver chase flew would help. Matt's hand crept under his coat. <laughs> <laughs> Matt. Rand needs like a spray bottle <laughs> to hit Matt with. Every time he reaches for his knife. Yeah, just, no. <laughs> so, the innkeeper, whose name is Master Gill, offers them room and board for free for the foreseeable future. How friendly. Friends of Tom discount. We get some, an implication of a public disagreement between people who support the Aes Sedai and the Queen being wrapped up together, and those who are like, what if we lynched you both? And then Matt shouts, For all I care, the Ravens can take every Aes Sedai straight to Shael Ghul. And I have a note that says, Oh my god, shut up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Rin needs to just pick Matt up and put him in a corner and not let him out until Moraine shows up. Please excuse my tiny gremlin child. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we get some backstory on Tom and how he was a court bard and the lover of Morgays. But at some point his temper took off and now he has a standing order of execution. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big downgrade from royal consort slash bard. Yeah, to kill him on sight. That was not a pretty breakup. No. <laughs> yeah, it's there. like the worst of all time. Well, almost. <laughs> so that finishes off that chapter. And we get to 36, Web of the Pattern. Where we learn all about your whispering. Tavarin. Rand and Matt are treated to a meal. You know, is them getting offered free room and board, Tavarin? Because people uh, are, like, naturally attracted to following their whims? I think it's Tavarin that they were put in a situation in which that was possible by knowing Tom. Whoa. But the meal that they get is real skimpy, and Rand wondered what would happen when there was nothing left because of the long winter. And yeah. The long winter that isn't ending. Anytime soon. Anytime before the end of this book slash start of the next one. Master Gill is talking with Rand and Matt, and Rand explains what's happened to them, why they're running. I think he leaves the, yeah, he leaves the Trollocs out of this telling. But Gill assures them that, hey, I know people that hang around the gates. If someone by Moraine's description comes in, I'll hear of it and I'll let you know. Matt, 
I don't remember what he does. I just have it written down. Matt continues to be involved in this subplot. Does he draw his dagger? I think he might reach for it, or he might just be acting like himself. Okay, and just to confirm, Rand is no longer having the <coughs> I'm sick dynamic. Correct. Yeah, okay. he got better um, just before they got to Camelot, it sounded like. How magical in this winter time. Yeah. Okay. So Rand is like, I want to hang out somewhere. How that about. Is it with Matt? Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to hang out away from Matt, but not spend any money. Is there a library? Gil's like, you're in luck. Welcome to this library. And in it is Loyal. Loyal? Loyal. I'm going to assume that it's Loyal because someone makes a comment about his name sounding like the word Loyal in book four. He's an Ogier. And the best. And I have him listed as an absolute unit. (laughs) He is ten feet tall. And all of his features are massive. Like, his nose is a snout. His mouth, like, splits his face into two parts because of how big it is. And Rand thinks he's a Trolloc. Yeah, Rand almost attacks him, and Loyal is like, please don't. Why does everyone keep trying to kill me? Camelin was made by the same... Ogier people, correct? The inner city was. The inner city. Yeah, like the old, the inner city and the palace were. Okay. And then are Ogiers specifically different? Like, I'm human plus, or we are this race of people? I guess we'll find out. Okay. My impression is that they're a separate species. Yeah. Like like Trollocs. Yeah, I don't know that they could intermix okay i don't think they live for like hundreds of years yeah i actually have it noted down how long a single ogier generation is because i went to the wiki so ogier mistaken for trollocs we discussed he says it's been six ogier generations since the war of the hundred years which makes each ogier generation about 200 years Mm Hmm. Which means that they live about eight times as long as a person. Mm-hmm. So, like four to six hundred years. He says, I think the reason you humans are the way you are is because your threads are so short. They must jump around in the weaving. Oh, there, I've done it again. The elders say you humans don't like to be reminded of how short a time you live. I hope <laughs> I didn't hurt your feelings. <laughs> what a guy. I forgot you were just humans. My apologies. <laughs> He's the actual best. So he's 90 years old, and he's still considered too young to like leave the town on his own. He's c- definitely considered a hothead, and he didn't even have the patience to wait a full year into the meeting that he says would have taken at least 10 to discuss if he's mature enough to go out into the world on his own or not. He's not mature enough to go out on his own. You don't think so? He's 90. He's basically Matt, but tall. (laughs) No. No one, well, maybe non-dagger Matt. Well, yeah. Nobody's as bad as Matt is right now. No, like, not the current Matt, but the way he's described as a hothead and impulsive um, seems like Matt 
hanging around two rivers thinking that's the most excitement he's ever going to have. Maybe. Pretty much, actually. Yeah, that is pretty apt. He talks about how the Ogier doing their stonework is not what they actually like to do. That it's just kind of something they did to kill time while they found the steadings after the breaking. They prefer to live in forests and groves that they sing into being. Capital S. Sing. Any thoughts or feelings? Giant fairies. Wow. Rude. (laughs) (laughs) No, like plant people. Oh, okay. Yeah, that one's accurate. I guess there are fae that are like giant cow people. What did you just say? Loyal is a giant cow person. Hmm. There is a sequence in here of Rand and. Did you say Loyal? I just want to care. I just want to make sure that we're unified on this. I don't mind. Okay, Rand and Loyal are talking about Rand being of Aeol descent. Uh, Loyal thinks that Rand is playing a trick on him by denying it. It's like, (laughs) you humans and your tricks. So when I first read it, I... There's a lot in that sequence that doesn't make sense without context. Because what kicks it off is Rand asking about Avendasora, which is like the Tree of Life, which offends Loyal. Or it doesn't offend him. He thinks that it's some kind of weirdo Aiel joke because the Aiel went to war over Avendasora just like 20 years ago. But me reading this the first time didn't understand that. And I also thought him thinking Rand was an Aiel was sort of a joke about Ogier thinking all humans look the same. And I didn't realize Aiel. I thought he meant Aiel as in everyone. I don't know. I didn't understand anything when I read this. Well, Rand looks pretty Irish, so it's understandable. Is is Aiel the equivalent of Ireland? Is is this the people that lived in the waste? Yeah, I mean okay. the place where they live isn't Ireland esque, but they are clearly supposed to be like quote unquote Irish light skin, red hair, green eyes. Okay. Oh my potatoes Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. So they're Gara. Yeah, except they can sleep. (laughs) Okay, because I definitely was confused for a little bit um, with the Isle, I think, because there's so many A names. I was confused Isle with Aesidae for a brief moment. I thought Isle could be a shortened Aesidae thing. And so then I was confused as to whether or not Aesidae could only be human. Which actually is a question. Can Aesidae only be human? Yeah, uh, the only other race that isn't Shadow Spawn is Ogier, and they can't channel. Okay, so we have Trollocs, Maridals, uh, and just dark things. And then there's humans and Ogiers. Yes. But some humans are super-powered and Aesidae. Yes. And... Some Ogier can do things that humans would consider superpowered. Yeah. And then there's humans with talents. I don't know that any Ogier have talents. 
That seems a little racist. Well, okay. That is helpful for me because it's just who, who are these people? What is going on? What, what is the dynamics of how interact? Because this is Rayanne's first time seeing an Ogier person because there's no way some person's going to travel all the way from Camelin to the Two Rivers. Well, he doesn't even live here. He lives off in his own area elsewhere. And Ogier just kind of basically ran away. This guy did, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's already playing hooky from life. Yeah. What a mood. Okay, that is good to know. He didn't bother to stay around to listen to whether or not he was allowed to go, so he just went. No, because he said, he says, I can't go on, on my own until I'm 100. And the meeting would have taken so long that I would have just been allowed to go, which means that it's like a decade-long meeting at least. I wonder what a minute is to them. But, okay. Okay, that's, this is helpful. Yeah. I Thank mean, you. That's an interesting note, too, about how they perceive time. When Rand tells Loyal that he's from Manatharen, Loyal starts to console Rand about the loss of his homeland, even though it happened around 2,000 years ago, as if it was something that happened to his grandparents or something. Yeah. And Rand is very nonplussed. Yeah, he's like, uh, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, it's really sad. And then Rand feels compelled to tell Loyal the full truth. Yeah. The whole truth, nothing but the truth. And Loyal is like, ah, dang it! Loyal is like, Tavarin. You are Tavarin. Airhorn noises. Yeah, which he then explains the concept of and says, Well, Rand, whenever you decide to leave town, I'll come with you. It should be interesting. So, the way he describes it is, Sometimes the wheel bends a life thread, or several threads, in such a way that all the surrounding threads are forced to swirl around it, and those force other threads, and those still others, and on and on and on. And I was curious what, how, beyond how you were interpreting this. Oh, you definitely told me about this. I just forgot what it was called. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, he, he, he did describe it to me. I just totally forgot Tavarin, probably because I haven't bothered to learn the words of this yeah, it's story. a silly word tavarin that's some really nice plot armor it how is. nice it's um, like institutional plot armor that seems a bit mary sue doing such a thing where the entire surroundings environment people objects etc change to fit their needs why is this series 14 books long it's not like to change their needs the idea is there's a script that they need to play out, and well, that's, the world will make sure it happens. That part is like specifically because of where they are in the pattern and the turning of the wheel, but the Tavarin part is just, I mean, I don't know, it's like a chance meeting that happens to come out ahead for them. And it's not necessarily that everything goes their way, it's just that important things happen when they're around. Which also is just sort of a justification for there being a book. So whenever anything sort of unlikely happens, you can just say, well, Tavarin, and you don't need to worry about it. 
which is helpful for Robert Jordan. With the path they take, is it faded? And then Tavarin is what keeps them along this faded path? Or is what Tavarin takes is what was predestined and changes it so the narrative can go in a way it wants instead? I would say that it's not necessarily like, you know, faded out every single step, but it is such that you hit the major points. Yeah, like if one of them tried to just hide in a basement and not have anything happen or change or like if they tried to avoid their fate, someone would burst into the basement to tell them that they had to go do something. And if they barred the door so nobody could burst in, then there would be a fire and they would have to leave the basement. It's not like forcing them to perform specific actions. It's just pushing them down the path farther until they reach the end. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't care if they like deviate from the path that it wants them to take. It just cares that they continue to move in the direction of the end. Magical enzyme. Yeah. Okay. So important and emotionally moving things will happen while Tavarin are around. Hence yeah. books. Yeah, hence the story existing. There is one line during the course of this talk with Loyal that I wanted to read, just because it's so good, and also, like, in retrospect, it's extra good because of what Loyal is trying to say with it, and the like pause that happens immediately after <clears throat> he says till shade is gone till water is gone into the shadow with teeth bared screaming defiance with the last breath to spit in sight blinders eye on the last day and then he just stares at rand and rand stares at him and they just look at each other for like a full minute and then Rand is like, that's great. Anyway. <laughs> Which, in retrospect, like, it makes sense why he says that. I don't know if you've gotten far enough to understand that, Jesse. But, like, at the time... What, that it, Rand's important? Well, no, that it's, like, specifically an Aiel thing. Uh-huh. Anyway, this section is really good. But yeah. not... We yeah. Chapters 31 through 34 are horrifically boring. Yeah. And then they get then, good. Yeah. These chapters are pretty good. Like, actually dramatic and enjoyable. Yeah. So, we're out of the woods, mostly. Not like the characters in chapter 37, The Long Chase, Nenevalan and Moraine, who are in the woods. So we go back to Nenave, Lan, and Moraine, and we had a quick recap of their journey so far as they've been on Perrin's trail. Uh, not a lot interesting has happened. They pretty much all the information that we get for this first part is they found him in a white cloak camp, and he's surrounded by 200 of the Children of the Light. So they're sitting there watching the camp, trying to come up with a plan. And the knave gets sent in to loosen the ropes holding the horses. 
so that she so that those can be a distraction later. Moraine is going to give a signal and she's supposed to come back. But she is making her way down the horses and hey, she finds Bella. Uh, Thank God. And she unties Bella and another horse completely. And then thunder and lightning starts. Uh, sadly, like not a lot happens in this chapter that is like worth discussing. It's mostly just tense action, not action in the like action sense. But the knave sneaking around, watching the white cloaks have big NPC energy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they, they just walk around on their patrol, see each other, say "All is well with the night." One white cloak shaped announced. The light illumine us and protect us from the shadow. All is well with the night, the other replied. The light illumine us and protect us from the shadow. With that, they turned and marched off into the darkness again. Yeah, Nave is playing Splinter Cell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's playing MGS1 and they're like, just a box. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of all that happens in that chapter. Uh, we move on to 38 which is called Rescue. This one's a little meatier. So Perrin and Egwene are still obviously prisoners of the White Cloaks. And Child Biar comes in to kick Perrin and get super hyped over kicking him. We get some backstory on, like, as they've been traveling, Biar just comes in and kicks Perrin sometimes and talks about torturing him to death. And Truly a child of the light. Yeah, like his expression <laughs> never changes. He's just super hyped about eventually getting to kill Perrin. And then he makes a, a modest proposal. Yeah, I have it noted down. I won't tell you what to do, and I it's just really convenient that this that there's man, if only there was a sharp rock in here. And then he pulls out a sharp rock and puts it right next to Perrin's bound hands. He's like, I'm going to turn around and leave. Sure would be bad if you escaped. And then Perrin gets into double negative logic loop mode. Yeah, I started wondering, is this just an excuse? Like, as soon as you start to loosen the bonds, BR just kills you? Because that seems yeah. most likely. Like, That's what oh, Aaron thinks. Like, oh, they tried to escape. Better kill him. Beyond, any thoughts? I mean, that happens all the time when people that are supposedly on the good side set things up and then say they protected themselves in self-defense or similar things. It's suspicious because if he's been so excited to kick and anticipate torture to then be... Oh, well, um, you see, I'm not going to be here right now, so don't do anything bad. But, like, if you wanted to. That would really help my timetables. Yeah, like, if you were going to do something bad, here's the bad thing that you should do, and here's the means to do it. Yeah. So, as Perrin is, like, trying to think through the double negatives, the two guards outside get taken out. And BR turns around and tries to pull out Perrin's axe and attack whoever is now in the tent and just gets destroyed. I ha The note says, Lan proves he's the coolest dude ever. Did he need to prove it? No. But as 
Perrin and Egwene are being cut out. Uh, this exchange happens. Is it really? Egwene gave a stifled sob. We thought you were dead. We thought you were all dead. Not yet. Oh, man. I'd ride with you to the last battle. <laughs> Tyshar Malkir. So Lan has them steal a pair of white cloaks, lowercase not capitals, and they sneak out of the camp under the cover of Moraine's Thunder and Lightning, which is startling all of the horses. When they finally get back to the camp, Lan is like, there's no Nenev. This ain't it, chief. I'm gonna go find her. And Moraine has to pull out every card she has in Lan's psychology to get him not to go after Nenev. Yeah, she keeps pulling out more cards, and she's like, is this your card? <laughs> is this your card? Until one finally stops him, uh, at which point it becomes clear it wasn't necessary because Nenev shows up with more horses than she left with. And then Egwene seems more excited to see Bella than Nenev, which I thought was funny. Yeah. It's like, oh, thank God. It's this exact scene of, like, running past the person who has their arms open for a hug, except she's going to hug a horse. I mean, is Nanave going to carry her away from the really awful camp? Nanave could. She's perfect in every way. Just slowly. Very slowly. Yeah. Very slowly. So the reunion is sadly cut short between Egwene and Bella. Because <laughs> Moraine is like, hey, this is great and all, we gotta go. When they finally stop a few hours later to make camp, Perrin continues to be a good boy. I'm not sure what that's in reference to, but I wrote it down. And Nenev does the unintentional uh, channeling slash herbs slash healing on him. Yeah, I don't think poultices are supposed to work fast enough that you can literally see your bruises receding. Yeah. Oh, I remember. It's because Perrin's entire torso is just like one huge bruise. And they're like, Perrin, how can you walk around? He's like, I didn't even notice. There's actually a cool line that I thought was pretty insightful about how Perrin thinks. Mm -hmm. uh, when Nanave sees how bruised he is, she asks, how could he have disliked you so much? And then Perrin thinks to himself, I killed two men. Aloud, he said, I don't know. Yeah, Perrin is really great. All three of the boys are really great as soon as we get through chapter 41. Yeah, I think I didn't give Perrin's story in the first book enough credit the first time around. I'm appreciating more this time the level to which Perrin's story starts here about his struggle against his own capacity for violence. Yeah. Yeah, he has a really interesting arc in here. We talk a lot about Perrin's wolf brother status in here. Um, yeah, Nanave notices he has yellow eyes. Yeah, and she's like, but it can't be a fever. And Perrin's like, I wish he wouldn't talk about this. Moraine says, she starts to say it won't hurt him, and then she gets cut off. And she's like, well, it won't hurt him directly. <laughs> yeah, it might make some people think you're a dark friend. Yeah. By the by, for those just tuning in, that's the kind of cutoff that happens when they start to say something that isn't true. Mm. 
Oh yeah, I forgot Moraine literally can't lie. Yeah, she's not she's not starting to talk and then rethinking it. She's like literally incapable of finishing the sentence that he won't be harmed by it. Mm. I didn't catch that. Lan talks a bit more about the Ajas, but I still don't think we have the full breakdown on what they are. Unless Mostly you have... just about the red. Yeah, unless yeah. you have some thoughts. Mostly the reveal that Elias, Elias? Elias? Was a warder. Yes. Before he became a wolf brother. Mm-hmm. And so it just made me wonder if someone is a wolf brother... Could that be something that takes a long time to be realized? As in, they're just stealth, not a werewolf, whatever. And then because of some other significant thing, then they start to develop those skills? Or is it reliant on you meet another wolf brother and then your wolf brother energy is activated? <laughs> Big wolf brother energy. <laughs> you know? Or or is it because Perrin is at a significant turning point in his life and he's changing? Is this why the wolf brother comes out? Because to be a warder before this, being a warder is a pretty big deal. At least we're shown that Lan's pretty badass, so warder's definitely not just an occupation you can stroll into. So I, I guess what I was just wondering is how does Wolf Brother work? Well, I don't know that Lan would know for sure, but the way that he talks almost makes it sound like a Wolf Brother interacting with a potential Wolf Brother is what activates the second Wolf Brother. Okay. Just like, again, like I, when he says that, I don't think that he's saying that in a way that sounds like he would actually be sure, but that's the way that his phrasing comes off when he's talking about you meeting a wolf brother and then becoming a wolf brother yourself really you think that that's just coincidence that's the true homosexual agenda wow um (laughs) okay see that's tavarin that's tavarin okay that's the part that i sort of fixated on in this chapter was yeah i'm still confused how does that become the thing And how long are yellow eyeballs going to be a thing? And is it something that can be concealed? I don't think they've invented contact lenses. Well, is is it because, like, he's under stress and has been in a stressful situation and that one wolf died? Is is this something the, the more wolf parts come out under duress? That one wolf? You mean Hopper? Hopper. Hopper, the goodest of boys. The, no, they're talking about that one wolf part, as in Perrin's eyes. I understood. Yeah, yeah, because Perrin, I I don't know. I kind of don't want to, it's not like a big spoiler, but that's a good question to I keep in mind. I was just wondering if it was kind of Twilight vampire style, if they're blood red, they eat blood. If it's golden, they're vegetarians. First, I don't know, just. That's a good question. Thank you. We'll find out, won't we? We'll find out next on... We'll find out next on Chapter 39, Weaving of the Web. Except the Perrin isn't in this chapter. Except the Perrin does not appear in this or the next chapter. So we'll find out, but not right now. Many, many books from now? No. uh, Many, many, like one more chapter from now. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
So it's one of the mornings, and Rand is going to go see Loghain brought before the king. Yeah, he's ready to do some tourist trap stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and he tries to talk Matt into coming. Uh, my note says, parentheses, and then all in caps, Matt is somehow still getting worse. Yeah. He thought he was bad, but then... I think this is the second to last time they interact with him before he stops getting worse. So Rand is out on the street, he's in the crowds, he's trying to find a good spot to look, and then... Oh, no, I'm so sorry, I'm skipping ahead. Uh, he talks to Master Gil on the way out, and Gil's like, Hey, just so you know... Some random beggar is, like, going around asking for you by name. And Gil's like, just be careful out there, young man. And then one of Master Gil's bouncers says that he would like to have Rand around in case there was a fight. Yeah. And once again, this sort of marks my progress bar on Rand as hardcore. Everyone... Well at this point already, people look at him and assume he's dangerous. We're gonna get to a prolonged section of that. Yeah. It's important to understand before we get into the throne room sequence that yes, people that... perceive Rand as dangerous already. Yeah, even without being able to see the heron, they think that he's gonna be good with the sword. Does he look distinctly different from these people, or is he it just Aiel, which would be different from them? Yeah. Okay. He's also like holding himself differently. I think is part of it as well. Yeah. His aura. Yeah. Okay. His energy. Chakra. Okay, but he's he's acting in a way. Just even the way he walks, he moves himself. It's more. That's a dangerous person. Yes. Okay. But not like me and my friend are going to beat up a 60-year-old man. Kind of dangerous. More like, you know, Don't mess good with, with the sword. Yeah. He's not 60, but okay. We get a pretty prolonged section here on the layout of Camelon. And I still don't understand it. I skim it every time. <laughs> uh, he does eventually find a spot to watch from in the crowd. But he's forced to leave when some random beggar shows up and starts, like, making a direct line for Rand. There was a line that I wanted to pull out. Sure. Men were doing things of which they had never before thought. Jostling a white cloak today. Tomorrow, perhaps pulling down a queen. Tavarin. People mm. are doing things they had never done before. Rand is around. Rand is around. In regards to visualizing, I'm kind of thinking of, um, I don't know if you've watched Avatar The Last Airbender, but Bossing say how it has these different layers of city. I'm kind of visualizing that in this city. That makes sense. That makes, yeah, kind of. Also, there's a whole paragraph about how sick it is that Rand is taller than everyone else and yes. how it bugs everyone else that he's taller than everyone. Yeah. And this is a bit of a mood for me. Yeah, he's, like, significantly taller than everybody else. How tall are you, Jesse? I'm 6'1". Disgusting. Okay. Rand has got to be, like, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, right? Not that tall. Maybe, like, 6'3". Rand's probably, like, 8 feet tall. <laughs> he's the same height as Loyal. Yeah. He makes Loyal look like a child. 
Let's see. How many spoilers will I get if I look at the Wheel of Time wiki for Rand oh God, 4? Let me do it. Beyond cover your eyes. You will actually get big spoilers, probably from the very top. Height, one span, one foot, seven inches. That oh my god, me. you're doing How it. How much is a span? Uh, Search Google. Measurements in the Wheel of Time. A span is two paces, which is six feet. Wait, so he's seven he- foot seven? <laughs> no way. <laughs> That's what it says. One span is two paces, and a pace is three feet. No way. He's seven and a half feet tall. That's what it says. Oh my god, that's awesome. Okay, so... That's absurd. So seven and a half foot tall Rand. Isn't Perrin described as being larger? Yeah, well, he's he's like... like, thicker. Yeah, he's like bulky. Okay. So, but the the other two boys have to be at least six foot tall as well, right? Because it, the, the, the height difference isn't... I'm going back. Okay, but three big boys. I'm still having a hard time wrapping my mind around Rand being seven foot seven. Seven and a half feet tall. I mean, like, how tall is Joel Embiid? Uh, Perrin is seven foot three. What?! That's what it says. It's like the biggest NBA player. And Matt is seven foot two. No way. There's just no chance a span is three feet. Dog, I'm looking at the Wheel of Time compendium website right now. Wheel of Time units of length. One span is two paces, which is six feet. Oh my god. Are all these people like... Spooky spaghetti people? <laughs> so is this why then the mirror wouldn't be so suspicious? Because just like, <laughs> Well, no, because if, if they're that tall, then being that height must be more normalized. So while we're told that the mirror are tall, skinny, spooky, if everybody's already tall, skinny, <laughs> it's more the lack of eyeballs that make them extra terrifying as opposed to being scarecrow people. Okay. Well, for what it's worth, I refuse to believe that that's canon. Okay, whoa, 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 wait. So, it seems like this is directly contradicted by an interview thing. Robert Jordan says that Rand is only six and a half feet tall, Perrin is 6'2", and Matt is 5'11". Does this author know how math works? Uh, apparently not. Okay, I can't spend the rest of this podcast <laughs> looking at this wiki. All right. Sorry I got us on a tangent. No, that's good. It's good to know that Rand is only six and a half feet tall and not seven and a half feet tall, towering over every other person to ever live. He's not Slenderman. <laughs> He's not literally Slenderman. Okay. So Rand runs away from the beggar and... He's, like, trying to find a spot that he can hide, but also watch Loghain roll by. He's like, no way I'm missing this. Yeah, he's like, this is pretty much the only reason that I'm here. Moraine is definitely dead, so I'm gonna at least look at Loghain. (laughs) And so he finds this cool wall that nobody's guarding or being next to, and he's like, I'm gonna climb it. Climbing up onto it, 
we get this description of Loghain. He has, like, long, curly hair, and he looks crazy, but also like a king. And as people are throwing stuff at him and screaming at him, he's just laughing maniacally. I thought it was a really cool image. They says, He held himself upright against the sway of the wagon, with one hand on the bars over his head. His clothes seemed ordinary, a cloak and coat and breeches that would not have caused comment in any farming village. But the way he wore them, the way he held himself, Loghain was a king in every inch of him. The cage might as well have not might as well have not been there. He held himself erect, head high, and looked over the crowd as if they had come to do him honor. Which... Yeah, Loghain is a cool dude. I just really enjoy the image of someone sitting in a cage, literally getting rotten fruit thrown at him, because people think he looks too much like a king. Yeah. Is this the false dragon? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Logan is the false dragon. Okay. And he's being contained by Aes Sedai. They say that there's Aes Sedai sitting at the corners of the cage so that he can't channel. Yeah. Okay. Does he believe himself to be the dragon? Probably. Is this a side effect of lose Theron, losing his mind, and splitting things apart, and ruining everything? Um, the- did the- Jesse, did they already explain why men go insane? Like, I know it's about the taint, but I don't remember if they mentioned why- (laughs) don't at me. I don't remember if they said why the taint exists. (laughs) Moraine talks to Gwen about it, and saying, I know you want me to say that it was men that did this that did this specifically, but- Moraine essentially says it's complicated and humans are complicated, but beyond that, I don't think it has been specified. Um, like, the reason that Loghain thinks he is the false dragon is not a direct one-to-one, like, because the taint on Sidine exists, therefore he thinks he's the dragon. I think it's all just interconnected as, like, the man who can channel and is super powerful and king-like is going to be the dragon reborn. Mm. So they have a real vague concept of the dragon, and so because this person fills that those those bullet points. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's just a bunch of prophecies, but there have been men that can channel that haven't been the dragon reborn. It's just any. It's up for grabs. The title is up for grabs. You have to prove yourself to be the Dragon Reborn by, I don't know, tearing down Tyr. Yeah. That seems really not worth it. The title <laughs> is in a briefcase, and you have to climb a ladder in the cell. Um, okay, so Rand leans over to try and get one last look, and he falls off the wall uh, in the opposite direction from the one that he climbed up in. Because someone says hey. Yeah, somebody's like, hey, what's up? And he loses his balance and falls. So that leads us to chapter 40, The Web Titans. So Rand wakes up from the fall and notices a girl who is about to have a full page of description about her clothes. She's a few years younger than him, which I guess means she's 16 to 17. She is just as beautiful as Egwene in a different way. 
I have the quote. Okay, please. She was completely different from Egwene in height and face and body, but every bit as beautiful. He felt a twinge of guilt, but told himself that denying what his eyes saw would not bring Egwene safely to Camelin one whit faster. So it's just Rand being a confused horn dog. Yeah. Well, he's... N- I can't express enough that he's 19. 18, 19. <laughs> this girl is pretty? Yeah. Yeah, if we're going to get a comparative description of how pretty she is compared to her mother, that is kind of gross. <laughs> so there's also a young man who is uh, just a couple years older than her, and they look alike enough to be relatives. Um, this man is named Gawain, and the girl's name is Elaine. She starts to tend to Rand's head wound despite his protests, She's, like, pulling stuff out of every pocket anyone's ever thought to sew into an embroidered cloak. And Gawain says to Rand, I don't think I ever saw someone as skilled at climbing as you, but you don't do so well at falling. Which is just, I thought it was a rare hint of, like, actual comedy in these books. I don't know, there's some... There's some alright comedy sometimes. Oh, definitely. It's just always worth calling out, because it's usually good. And eventually Rand puts it together that these two are royalty. Yeah. I mean, she's casually using a silk scarf to bandage him. Yeah. She could just be rich. Yeah, Gawain says that people usually do whatever Elaine tells them. Some names are dropped without context, and then, yeah, Rand figures out that they are the... Uh, gosh, what are they called? I Daughter, know he- heir, and prince sword or something like prince that. Prince of the sword? First prince of the sword? Yeah. Maybe that's, yeah, I don't know. But anyway, Rand flips out about meeting the royalty, and the royals in question are like, are you dumb? Yeah, he's just like, I'm going to climb back over the wall. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm going to go and points at the wall, and they're like, you're dumb. <laughs> You've literally torn out your fingernails getting up the first time. Yeah, you, like, almost died. At which point, a guy named Gallad comes up, and Gallad is- He's the handsomest man Rand had ever seen. What a Gallad. (laughs) Men are doing things they never would have thought possible (laughs) (laughs) when Rand and Gallad are in the same room. That's uh, actually how I remember the difference between Gawain and Galad. I think about which one is a total lad. Oh my god. <laughs> Galad is the boy that's too good for his own good. And Gawain is not bad yet. That's how you can remember. Yeah, Galad always does the right thing, even when it's not the right thing. Yeah. He's like, lawful neutral. Yeah. And Elaine hates them. Yeah, I wonder if Gallad is going to join any lawful neutral organizations in the future. Uh, spoilers for book three, I think. So Gallad... Like, a lot of what we hear about him after Elaine sends him away is... I was doing some thinking, and like, it's probably all just Elaine wanting to go out and break a bunch of rules and do pranks, (laughs) and Gallad being like, Please don't. <laughs> and Elaine's, and that's probably most of why she hates him. I mean, it's like, it kind of sucks that he's a stick in the mud and follows the rules. 
it might also be half sibling angst. Yeah, but he's definitely not like the scum of the earth like Elaine says he is. Because she has some angst, definitely. And Gawain has hero worship over Galad, which is kind of fun. Bion, how did you feel like just about how Elaine was behaving in this chapter? Like, did you enjoy reading Elaine? She seemed really high energy. I did kind of enjoy how she's like, let's just fix this person who fell. That's what I'm going to do. I, I found that fun. I don't know, because it's it's a girl, woman, described through Rand's eyeballs again. And um, I don't know. I, I think it'd be interesting if this character is ever met by someone that isn't Rand. Because, I don't know, Rand's point of view still hasn't grown on me. Yeah, she's going to get a lot of description. She's also... I'll just say, she's a point of view character later. Yeah, but like, you read the full page of describing her clothes, right? She's Mm -hmm. obviously a main character. Yeah. I just, you know, we also, maybe it's just a really nice cloak. I just wanted to make sure. Okay. Um, I, I don't know. It, It feels like it's a pretty typical character to exist where it's a girl that wants to have adventures but she has these obligations and responsibilities and a lot of it ties into marriage and how she acts and things like that she's cool princess yeah yeah she's like a not like all the other girls princess yeah well like elaine and fair assessment yeah elaine and egwene are kind of made for each other in that way lesbians uh yes but not them (laughs) okay uh so galad goes and grabs the guards as soon as he snitches yeah he's a huge snitch gross Um, as soon as he is not being watched the guards take rand into custody and elaine goes with them she and gawain both go with because they are separately summoned by the queen, and they're like, oh good, I guess we're gonna get executed. (laughs) Uh, I think Gawain actually makes a comment about, like, it's probably good that she's seeing you in this throne room, because I've never seen her order an execution from here, so you're probably safe. So, I wonder if the execution room has drains, then. Well, they probably don't perform the execution in the room. Okay. Well, no, I'm just saying, right? Like... So there is a strong older man guarding the queen, and a woman whose age can't be placed sitting beside slash behind the throne. Asada. Wow. Insightful. <laughs> you know me, just first time reader picking out all these insights. <laughs> um, and also there is McQueen, who is described as... In the grossest way possible. Yeah. She is described as all the promises of Elaine's girlish beauty kept in full. The word they use is ripened. Mmm, love objectification. I love it so much. 1990. You are a consumable object. 
He thinks if she had been a widow in Eamon's field, she would have had a line of suitors outside her door, even if she was the worst cook and most slovenly housekeeper in the two rivers. Let me Oof. consume your ripened teats. Jesus. Am I wrong? <laughs> no, that's, but... That, that's, uh... But then Rand berates himself afterwards... But not because that's just a gross way to think about women. Apparently that's just because it's uh, not cool to think about a queen. Uh, sounds about right. Um, Thanks, society. So the queen's name is Morgays, And she kind of chews Why out- Why can't there be Morgays? Whoa. I think there's exactly one in this series. You uh, got one droplet of diversity. Uh, Congratulations. So she chews out Elaine and Gawain for a bit, and then she, like, the conversation is really engaging. And then she makes it to Rand, and Ilyeda, dang it, Elida, I've written it down, Ilyeda, so forgive me for the rest of this episode. Elida. Elida, um, like, takes interest in him, and she, it's worth noting, by the way, that she is literally behind the throne in this scene. Uh, hmm. Yeah, really makes you thinking emoji, huh? Yeah. Uh, there was there was a cool line where Rand is describing how he feels about Elida. Uh-huh. He says, he had sometimes thought of Moraine as steel covered with velvet. Mm -hmm. With Elida, the velvet was only an illusion. Yeah, that was really good. Even though Moraine's exterior softness isn't genuine and deep to her core it at least exists yeah you can at least pretend like she is on your side elida doesn't even bother no so she like stops knitting and walks forward to look at rand and i'm gonna read this entire section a shepherd from the two rivers she said softly a whisper meant to be heard by all with a heron mark sword those last few words acted on the chamber as if she had announced the Dark One. Leather and metal creaked behind Rand, boots scuffing on the marble tiles. From the corner of his eye he could see Talonvar and another of the guardsmen backing away from him to gain room, hands on their swords, prepared to draw, and, from their faces, prepared to die. In two quick strides, Gareth Brine was at the front of the dais, between Rand and the Queen, even Gawain put himself in front of Elaine, a worried look on his face and a hand on his dagger. Just like, it's so good that they establish instantly, because up until now, every time a character has seen the Heron Mark, they've been like, oh wow, a Heron Mark. That's weird. Yeah, but this time they're like, oh, everyone in this room is about to die if he decides to kill us. Like, no nothing. They're just dead. Is is this because anyone who wields this has to be a certain level of sword master? Yeah, the idea is like they were made for sword masters, and then the only way you get it is by killing the person that has it. Ah, uh, so why did his dad just casually have it? What a fascinating question. Mysteries! Yeah, and then I think it's Elida says about him having a Heronmark sword. She says he's too young. Yet still, it belongs with him, and he with it. Look at his eyes. Look how he stands. How the sword fits him, and he it. He is too young, but the sword is his. 
And that just goes back to what I was talking about before, where people will very easily register Rand as dangerous now, where they definitely wouldn't have before. Yeah, definitely. So, Morgaze talks to people in the room and is like, what do you think? She actually turns to Garth Brine, the guy guarding her and her general, and is like, I require the adv- or I require the counsel of my general, and Elida theoretically has a foretelling. I guess she has a foretelling. I'm a little dubious if this is real, but well, like, she's not allowed to lie. She's not allowed to lie, but like I don't remember. Does she utter the phrase? This she is- says this too. I foretell. Pain and division come to the whole world, and this man stands at the heart of it. I obey the queen and speak it clearly. Okay, now here's the question. Is the word foretell in capital F? Yes. Yes. Okay, well then I guess it's for real. In a different book, we see a different foretelling, and it isn't like this, which is the only reason that I was mildly... And I mean, Elida's whole character is based on a foretelling she had a long time ago. Yeah. Which is pretty cool that it seems like Jordan already had that planned for her character. Yeah. So Morgaze talks with uh, the people in the room that are important and decides not to imprison Rand. And I pulled out this quote. Or kill him. Or kill him. Yeah. She says, Suspicion is smothering Camelin. Perhaps all of Andor. Fear and black suspicion. Women denounce their neighbors for dark friends. Men scrawl the dragon's fang on the doors of people they have known for years. I will not become part of it. When I took the throne, I swore to uphold justice for the high and the low, and I will uphold it, even if I am the last in Andor to remember justice. Seems like a good queen. Yeah. Be a shame if she's an Aes Sedai puppet. Yeah. Be a shame if she's a Tarvalon witch. Oh yeah, and she's sending her daughter to go be a Tarvalon witch. We've sort of glossed over that. Yeah. I uh, mean, why wouldn't you send your daughter to become a Tarvalon witch? I think you answered your own question. <laughs> so, she lets Rand go with a warning. She's like, you're free to go, but if I catch you again, I won't be so kind. And he's escorted out by the guards, Elaine and Gawain. Um, before he leaves, Elaine does some quote-unquote light flirting and Gawain tells Rand that if he had a shofa on shofa 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 anyone would note him as an Aiel and Rand's like I'm a shepherd from yeah. the two rivers yeah he's like I'm a shepherd from the Tam Althor my father is the two rivers <laughs> my father <laughs> is my father um he Turns around and starts to walk away, and then he's like, wait, Elida could find me as soon as she's done in there, and he just starts sprinting through the streets. That seems like a great plan. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's gotten savvier. Yeah, he is now genre savvy. And that's the end of the chapter, and the end of this section, which, oh boy, we are into the good part of the book. Yeah. Or at least out of the bad part. Yeah. Yeah. Like, everything after this isn't universally great, but we're done with the parts that are just, like, abjectly bad. 
Did we yeah. make it through the wilderness? Oh my god, we made it through the wilderness. I don't yeah, think like they are 15 literally, chapters of nothing. They are literally never again in the woods until the end of this book. <laughs> cool. And thank god for that. So are we going to finish the book next episode? No, God, no. Um, it actually, there's a great break point because there's like 16 chapters left. Yeah. Um, so unless you want the next episode to be four hours long. No. Uh, there is a good break point, like eight chapters in. I uh, mean, it goes from page 693 to 862. That's 160 pages. That is less than the amount of pages that we read for this segment. Um, I mean, how about this? Uh, you and I will read it. Why don't you and I? Well, I guess I'm going to do it first. I'll go through it all and we'll decide at that point. Because, like, I'm not opposed. I just, um, if we decide not to, I will say that, like, eight chapters in is a really good point to stop. He was very excited. Well, I'm not that excited. I mean, I'm more than happy to finish it. I think it'll be fun to get to the end of the book and have you just, like, making shrugging motions for 20 continuous minutes as we talk about the last couple chapters. Okay. Yeah. It, like, it makes so much sense on a second read. Okay. But on the first read, it is not fun or okay. interesting no you're just like what's happening okay um because i generally read the chapters almost right before we have the podcast and always stresses tyler out because he worries that i won't have read it in time but i do so it's almost like he doesn't know how fast you read you know you'd think you'd have learned by now <sighs> but yeah I enjoyed the back half of these chapters more than the last segment of chapters that we did for the last episode. Yeah. Yeah, the back half of these is really good. I think this chapter where he's like in the speaking with the royals is really good in general. I think it's my favorite chapter in the book. Um yeah, I think like in retrospect there are parts of the ending that I like more, but only because they're so, like, unbelievable and have mm -hmm. so little to... I like those ones ironically. <laughs> this is probably my favorite unironic chapter. Yeah. As I said a couple episodes ago, there was a point where I stopped thinking of the characters as characters and started thinking of them as plot devices or parts of a fable. Mm -hmm. But this chapter with the royals actually felt like the characters were present and alive instead of just tools in a big gearbox. Mm -hmm. And that makes it a lot more enjoyable to read. Yeah. It turns out that when your characters exist, people like reading them. Well, one way or another, we will be finishing this book. Um, and if it's as simple as you say, because I think some of those chapters are pretty much just like, they traveled, and then the chapter ends. But we'll figure it out. So this was a fine episode, and we'll be back for more. Uh, I'm Tyler. I'm Beyond. And I'm Jesse. And this has been Third Wheel. We'll see you around. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. Bye.